0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: If you want to know the truth, when I was first diagnosed, my first thought was maybe my father will notice me. And I thought, wow, that's screwed up. Like if that's my first thought, I wonder why I got sick. So I was so into personal development before, so I did have some self-awareness. When I say self-awareness, I feel like probably didn't have much, but I was aware that your thoughts can create your reality, that emotional trauma can be stored in your body, and that can cause dis-ease in your physical body, right? So when that happened, I remember thinking, okay, that's screwed up. I got to work on that. My second thought was, I feel guilty for being sick. I feel like I screwed up my children already. I've put this trauma inside of them. Now they're gonna be like, oh my gosh, my mom's dying. How's that gonna affect their future? When I got past all that stuff and went through a lot of crazy stuff, some of it I talk about on my TEDx talk called Dying to Be a Good Mother, I really got to this point where I realized I wasn't afraid of dying. I thought I was. I thought, oh my gosh, my children need me. These people need me. What if, what if, what if? When I got really, really quiet with myself, I was terrified because I didn't know how to feel alive. I had no idea how to actually live my life because I was so conditioned to believe as a woman and a mother that if I felt good, that was selfish. That was my true core belief.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Heather, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, Serene, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of somebody on your team who wrote in and told me a little bit about the work that you do, um, which I was really sort of intrigued by given some of the things that you've been through in your life and and where you've ended up, all of which we will get to. But before we get there, I want to start by asking what I think is a relevant question given the nature of your background, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school (laughs) and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Amazing, so I laughed because it was like social group i was I would say I was a little bit of everything, and I found that I wasn't actually the most popular person, but I was friends with the popular kids, but I would see the ones that were the outcasts or the goths or whatever um was not athletic by any means, but I was the one who always kind of saw everybody, noticed mm-hmm. them, remembered them um. And kept my pulse on everyone, which is really interesting because then I went into social work
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I have a huge heart and love for humanity and just making sure that people feel seen, heard, and understood. And it doesn't yeah. matter where you are in the world or what social group you're in, we all have that magic within us. And I, I didn't really know that I knew that back then.
2: So it's really funny you say that, you know, I always jokingly say if I went back to college, uh, I would approach the social experience of college like Van Wilder, like literally just join every single club, be as friends with as many people as possible. But I think high school is a time of like great insecurity for so many people, like, you know, especially when you get to that sort of junior high phase of, uh, you know, turning into a horrible human being that your parents wonder why they ever gave birth to. And largely, I think it's it's insecurity because you feel constantly judged and, you know, as if you're comparing yourself to other people because there's a sort of artificial pecking order and so many people feel invisible and unseen. And, you know, as both a parent and somebody who had that sort of gift in high school to, you know, navigate, you know, multiple social groups, what do we do about this? Because, I mean, the, you know, unfortunate result of this in my mind is that you end up with people shooting up schools.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because you said gift and I didn't see it as a gift back then because my mm-hmm. part of my story being going through high school was I wanted to hide. I didn't see I didn't understand what my life purpose was. And what I mean by that was I remember um missing like a week of school at a time calling in to the principal, you know, when you call in and leave a voicemail and I don't know if anyone else did this, but I would pretend I was my mother and I would write notes <laughs> and I would forge her signature. And then I, I, you know, they'd call me into the office and be like, Heather, we know what you're doing. And I'd be like, Yes, but you don't understand. I give them the sob story. I'm like, my mother's a single parent and I played the martyr and it worked really well. But inside, I had this deep sense of loneliness, this deep sense of what is my purpose in the world? So I could empathize or connect to that feeling. And then years later, I had my oldest or my first son who's now 15. I was 18 when I had him. I remember looking at him going, oh my gosh, Like I need to show up. I need to figure this thing out. I need to figure out like how I want to be present on this earth. And that was kind of my rude awakening. So when I look at the epidemic of I don't want to say epidemic of childhood now, but I do feel like there is a sense of epidemic uh, mm. going on where these individuals are shooting up schools, are you know saying, "Help me, help me, help me." I see all human behavior as a language because I could relate to that when I'm sitting there going, "I don't know what's wrong with me." Like I'm not a physician, I'm not a therapist, I'm a teenager. Like please help me, somebody, please look and observe at my You know behavior and say, Heather needs support. And of course, the only support that I was getting were medication or talk about the problem, but really realizing it was on such a deeper level that Mm. really needed to be explored. So when we're looking at this, it's not a, yes, I I mean, I'm Canadian, so I'm not going to get on like a gun policy or anything like that, but really observing that this is, you know, such a bigger problem than policies and mental health. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're, we gotta go deeper. We can't just look Mm. at people on the surface.
0: Yeah. I I mean,
2: it's funny because I, you know, mentioned this before on the show, I said, you know, like you look at high school guidance counselors and I said, no offense to these people, but I don't feel like my high school guidance counselor was anything, but somebody who helped, you know, uh, manage my schedule. It was like having a glorified secretary, Mm. uh, who basically forced me to pick from the options in front of me, but never really, you know, It asked me to think, you know, on sort of a deeper level. And maybe at that point in your life, you don't have enough experience or data points to really make a decision uh, about what you want to do. But you mentioned two things. You mentioned that you were raised by a single mother um, and you gave birth at 18. Mm -hmm. Two things that are both not normal experiences for most people. Uh, so one, I wonder how the impact of being raised by a single mother has influenced the kind of parent that you were. And you know, I had a friend from college who lost her mother right after we graduated. And one of the things she always said to me was that I had to grow up really fast, mm-hmm. that pretty much my 20s were vanished because of that. And I think for you, that started way earlier than it does for most people. And that's got to alter the trajectory of your life in a way that most of us probably don't really understand. Many of us don't. So what do, what do you want people to know about that, that you think they don't? And what misperceptions do you think they have about that?
1: Yeah. So this is such a great question and conversation to have. Um, I'm such an advocate now for, you know, being the mother and woman that I am looking back and looking at my mother. I just think I am so incredibly grateful for you. And I tell her all the time, like, thank you for not giving up on me. But at the same time, there was a lot of, I don't want to say weaknesses, but there was a lot of healing that my mom had to do that maybe she's not even open to doing today. And I know she might not listen to this conversation, so I'm tiptoeing around this. Yeah. But she, um, you know, she wasn't able to be there for me emotionally. And so growing up, I was actually my mother's mother. And when I became a parent, you know, in my social circles, everyone's like, oh, if Heather, if anyone can handle this, Heather can handle this. And so not only did I have to grow up really quick because I became a mother at a young age, but I also feel like I had some of those skills already because I was living um, as with adult responsibilities in a child's body.
2: Mm. Wow. So, you know, one thing you mentioned is that she had a lot of healing to do. And, you know, you said you were tiptoeing around the conversation. I think I kind of had the temptation to do the same when it comes to my mother. Um, I remember I, somebody had mentioned, a, recommended a book to me. One of them was like, you know, healing for daughters of narcissistic mothers, or, you know, it was a book about difficult mothers. So I'm like, God, I hope my mom never sees me reading this or finds it on my <laughs> shelf. Uh, That's when but, you
1: put a book cover over it, right? <laughs>
2: well, it's, it's funny because I saw all these patterns and, you know, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I have this, you know, uh wonderful relationship with my mother. She's the most difficult relationship in my life. And yet um I realize that none of it comes from a bad place. It's just expressed in really horrible ways often. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that that's that's really hard because you know you have this relationship with this person. I mean we got a we had a breaking point about two years ago where I told my dad, I said, okay, this is a line that she's crossed where I'm not good. I was like, she wants a relationship with me, she can come forward and apologize, but I'm done here. You can assume that our relationship is over unless she decides to back down.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
2: was the first time I, you know, had enough boundaries to do that. But you know, I also realized I was like, wow, how you know, how much of that is on me and how much of that is on her.
1: Mm-hmm. You gain a lot of compassion, especially when you see yourself in your mother's situation when yeah. you become The parent. And although I'm raising three boys and I'm not raising girls, right? So I can't understand in that capacity. But putting myself in that situation, I've had to do so much inner work. And I'm sure you're familiar with Byron Katie. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I mean, that woman's work has changed my Mm -hmm. life of all of the shame and the blame of you did this and you did that. And I just think it could be so much worse. But realizing like doing the work that I do now not only on myself, but with other women, we're all doing the best that we possibly can. And like you said, those boundaries are so essential to our own mental, physical, and emotional health and who we want to be in the world. And oftentimes we think we're broken, but we don't realize it's just healing that needs to be done. But when you're choosing yourself, sometimes the person that hurt us unconsciously is triggered the most, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't you dare push back on me? Like I brought you into this world. I can take you out. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really interesting.
2: Uh, so I have to ask, I wonder being the person that you are knowing, having the knowledge base that you do, this is something I always ask people who do work similar to yours as a parent. Are you immune to any of the bullshit that like 90% of parents deal with? I mean, you've had
1: teenagers. Mm-hmm. um, Well, in my past life as a social worker, I also worked with um, high-risk families, Uh and I think I do have an unfair advantage because I was so young. So watching my son now at 15, I can remember who I was at his age, and I'm like, okay, like you're doing much better than I did, buddy. Like We're good to go. Um, I definitely feel that. I also see how much fear there is in the world around parenthood, and Uh I think I've been able to let go of a lot of that. Like, you know what? I'm going to screw you up regardless. It doesn't matter you know, if you eat, every item is organic or not. Like at the yeah. end of the day, I'm not losing sleep over this. You are loved. I try to keep lines of communication open. You can call me on my shit. I can call you on yours and we can just try to grow together. It's such a yeah. different mindset than how we grew up.
2: Well, it's funny because uh, you know, I mean, in the Indian culture, you're pretty much taught you don't challenge authority in any way at all. You know, and I, I see when I see how that plays out as you get older, um, it plays out as a lack of boundaries. Which I, I want to get back to to talk to you about boundaries because I think it's a really important subject that we've done nowhere near enough justice to on this show yet. Um, but. I, the reason I, that, that came to my mind is I have a friend who's got a teenage got a teenage daughter, and I remember we were at the Super Bowl. I was like, "Wow, I'm like, dude, she was like super pleasant that day, and she was really nice." He said, "Yeah, that's because we took her cell phone away for the weekend, so she played nice." But she's back to being this sort of demon spawn. Which you know, like I remember, I thought my parents were the most awful people on the planet when I was in junior <laughs> high. Like I've you know told this before, where I literally didn't invite them to open house in junior high because I was embarrassed by their Indian accents.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's the stupidest thing like to to think that. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, like, what would you tell parents then who are listening to this about having these challenging conversations with their their kids or navigating these periods where their kids are, you know, going through what teenagers do? Because, you know, my friend and I talked was like, were you a decent person as a teenager? He's like, no, I was a horrible human being. I thought my parents were evil. I remember I was livid that my parents made me spend an entire day at Disneyland uh, for my <laughs> sister's birthday. Like, <laughs> I mean, think about how angry of a person would feel that way.
1: How dare you make me be this in the most magical place on earth, or whatever yeah, they call it? I'm exactly. not a Disney person, but right. um, I get you. You get point. what I'm saying. Yes.
4: Yeah.
1: Um. There is a gentleman, the name of Josh Ship, uh-huh. and yeah. he talks about he's kind of like I call him not a guru, but he's like the expert on raising teens. And I just love his background and who he is. And I'll never forget this visual that he talks about. You know, you're in a roller coaster first, this lap bar goes down and it's across your waist. What's the first thing you do? You shake it, right? You're Uh going to ask, you're going to shake on this bar and you're going to say, is this going to hold me? That is what it feels like to raise a teenager. That is what it is like to raise a child. This relationship where the child is going to say, I don't know who I am in the world. I don't know what's going, you know, what's pulsating through my body. I don't know what these thoughts are, these feelings, who I want to be. I'm just trying to figure who I am, figure out who I am. And they're pushing that boundary. They're like, do you got me? Do you got me? And having that visual when I'm explaining that to people, but oftentimes when I'm feeling really challenged in my own life, because I am not immune to this, like I have emotions too. I have moments of challenge and I just think he's pushing me. He wants to see if I can hold him in this space. And I think boundaries are a lifesaver. And when you Mm -hmm. know how to sit with it, to implement it and say, oh, I really don't want to do this right now because I... I'm so afraid that you're going to hate me when I'm older, but I know it's so healthy for you. So we're going to do this and they're screaming and all of that, or they're uncomfortable. It's like, you know what? In hindsight, you're going to say, thank you. And, um, it's so essential.
2: Well, I think with my parents as, as absurd as it was, their boundary was you get good grades in school. This is non-negotiable. You know, if you ask an Indian parent to pay you $5 for every A because some other kid at school gets that deal, they'll be like, you get a meal every night. So no. And to this day, I I thank them for that because what they instilled was intrinsic motivation to pursue things for their own sake, which I don't think you could do creative work if you didn't have that. Like, you know, I hated it at the time. Um, But the other thing you mentioned that everybody wants to be seen, and maybe you of all people can answer this question. So I went back to. The town that I grew up in. After 25 years, we moved away after ninth grade. And naturally, as a boy who moved away as a teenager, your kind of question is always, "Is the girls, you know, are the girls that were hot then still hot?" (laughs) But the the bigger, deeper question that really I wondered was, "Do these people see themselves the way I did? Like, does the hottest girl in school think she's the hottest girl in school, or know that?" Mm -hmm. And you know, I always wanted to know. And I figured, maybe you, of all people, given your background, is this just a misperception that we all have?
1: Um, I will tell you, the hottest girl in school does not think she's hot. Mm. And if she comes across that way, it's typically because she's putting a mask on. In my, I mean, in my own personal life, in my own work, observing humans, loving human behavior, people who are remarkable do not realize it. People who are naturally beautiful do not realize that typically um i mean then it can become egotistical or narcissist i don't know but yeah. my what i typically see is we're not aware of our beauty rega- mm. if that's internal or external yeah. um are so we're so self-conscious and um being seen heard and understood kind of piggybacking off of that being seen right the ones that are like It can be look at me, it can be so many different things, but observing people like I used to have some of the most beautiful friends and they had no idea that they were beautiful. And now 20 years later, looking back and I can't even recognize her in public because of the work that she's had done. And I'm like, who are you? What's going on? And you could just, you can immediately tell and how people, their energy and how they show up and their mindset and how they're, you know, how they treat other people.
2: One of my favorite ways to spread the message of our mission here at the Unmistakable Creative is through speaking. In the last few years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops to professional associations, large companies like Citibank and Meredith Corp, and even small ones on how creativity can lead to better working environments, fuel innovation, and increase the bottom line. So if you think I'd be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit speaking.unmistakablecreative.com and get in touch. Again, that's speaking.unmistakablecreative.com. I mean, I had a friend who in college, who was like a short Napoleonic dude and that, you know, I'm not going to bore you with the details so I've talked about in another episode, but he actually once told me, he said, if I had like, your looks and your height, I would be 10 times as more confident than you are. And I was like, whoa, but you know, you mentioned that it was funny. I was writing about this this morning about, you know, how you turn disadvantages into advantages. And, you know, I mean, as an Indian kid in a small Texas town, I was extremely self-conscious about my ethnicity and the fact that I had really big lips. And I was like, wow, today pay people, you know, literally it's like, oh, these are the reasons that girls don't like me. And today people get collagen injections and half of we my matches. would pay for that. Well, <laughs> half of my matches on a Bumble have mentioned one of the reasons that they matched with me was because of my lips.
1: Interesting.
2: <laughs> like, you know, same, same stupid thing, different perspective, you yeah. know?
1: Yeah. Uh, Growing up, I had such an insecurity. So I have, there's French in me. The French people are very hairy. And Mm. even though I'm blonde, it showed up. Mm. So I remember having this mustache as a child. And Serena, you're probably not aware of this. You probably don't even know what Nair is. This is like a female thing. Well, I'm Indian.
2: So uh, yeah, I I am. Okay. Indian people have to deal with this. So
1: Okay. Well, typically it was like a girl thing. It's like one of those lotions that you put Mm -hmm. on and your hair falls out. So I would put Nair on my face, right? On my mustache. When I was like 12 years old. And then I'd rub it off and I'd have blisters and like these severe hives, and I would still go to school like that. All because someone's like, You're hairy, you're hairy, you have a mustache. And then I was just known as this woman, or not woman, little girl who had a mustache. But it's interesting to grow up because that's still one of my insecurities. But now yeah. I really don't care because I understand more people do it. And I'm like, Hey, honey, how's my mustache doing? He's like, Ah, you gotta, you gotta deal with that. But as a child, that was incredibly embarrassing. And, you know, it was that one person, that one time that would say something and everyone else is too busy thinking about their own hair. They're not Mm -hmm. looking, they don't really, they're not losing sleep over yours.
2: Uh, Well, let's talk about your actual work. Like what led you into social work? I mean, you know, if you have, uh. A, a, you know, newborn as an 18 year old mother, you don't have the luxury of going to college or doing many of the things that, you know, most of us do in terms of a career trajectory. So how did that lead you into social work?
1: Well, the interesting part is growing up, I was um, probably labeled as the, mo- the most, um, what it, you know, what do they call it when you're like, oh, when you're going to grow up, you're going to be the most successful at this. Mm-hmm. It was like, Heather's going nowhere. Like, I can't see her going to college or university. That was not instilled in me. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I actually snuck my way into university and I can explain that story if you want. Yes, but, please.
2: I always like people who break rules.
1: Oh, I love this. So in high school, you know how you have your you have like your college and university courses, right? So mm-hmm. if you don't take the university courses, you can't do that. So I had Logan, had my son. And I thought to myself, okay, Heather, you have two paths. First of all, something just was burst inside of me. And I was using my anger to fuel my passion to live, my passion to just do better for my child. And I remember... Um, having this mantra, like, do not become a statistic, do not become a statistic. So I could either go down the welfare path, I could go down the get a part-time job path and go nowhere in life, or I can educate myself and be in tremendous student debt. And I chose to educate myself and be in tremendous student debt because I knew education would lead me somewhere in a more positive direction so um went to college for a year and i thought this is absolutely hilarious i remember reading the textbooks cuz i didn't even i barely made it through high school because i didn't read or apply myself reading the textbooks and i would tell my mom oh my gosh do you know how much you can learn if you actually read a book like if you <laughs> open the book and read it she's yes. like yes heather i could always see this potential in you you just had to apply yourself so getting the little stars of hope i kept continuing you know, little by little it was like that little engine that could. And what I found was, um, I'm like, okay, I could go down this college path or I could attempt to do something I didn't think I was capable of doing, which was getting a degree in social work. So I applied to university and they said, well, Heather, you don't have any prerequisites. So you have to wait till you're two years out of high school. And right now you're only um, like six months out of high school. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Then I applied for summer sessions. So instead, so starting school in June instead of uh, September, I got in. After I got in, they said, oh, crap, you were supposed to start in September. It actually hasn't been two years. And I said, I know, but you let me in. I got I'm here now. You can't do anything about it. So I flew it. I flew by, I got a whole semester done. I jam-packed my summer, which I do not recommend for anyone. That is formula for burnout. And I was just so committed to never becoming statistic. So I bought into the cultural hustle. And Mm. my life was my son and school. And I remember going to school, barely taking showers, kid vomit in my hair. And I was just so determined to become. Wow.
2: It, it, it's, it's interesting because I think we have this sort of culture of um, perpetuating this notion of, you know, hustle and grind like there is no tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, like I always say, you read Medium on any given day and you feel like the most inefficient human being on the planet with, you know, all this productivity porn. I know because I write a lot of it.
1: So, uh, <laughs> I know because I write those articles. <laughs>
2: I mean, some of it is mine. I look at it and, you know, I I was the other day I was thinking because I've, I've been on a very long sort of Facebook hiatus for the last 30 days and this is the second time I've done it. And what I was beginning to see is that, wow, all of this media really has a huge influence on our own cognitive biases and how we choose to perceive our experiences and what we consider a measure of success and, and what we consider, you know, worth goals worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like. You know, the highlight reels of other people's lives are basically shaping our values, which is terrifying. Um, So, you know, obviously, given your circumstances, I don't think you really had a choice. Um, But how do you think about that now, Uh, you know, given that that's what you had to do to get there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, and of course, if you're familiar, which I know you are, this whole personal development world, right? Personal development and coaching and productivity, and you can get things done so much quicker if you just follow my formula and my steps. And I was also a huge fan of personal development. But of course, because of my perception and my lens and what I bought into, I was attracted to people who just go 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 and sleep is for sissies and don't worry about your health you know you can you can take care of that when you're older so i'm young i'm going i'm buying into all of this and then at 27 which was 6 years ago i was diagnosed with a stage 4 cancer and i had three boys or ha- i still have three boys but my youngest was a year old and It's so true because all of the women that I was surrounding myself with and the role models where I wanted to be would say, you just got to sacrifice. You just got to sacrifice. Keep going. If you have a dream, just sacrifice everything for that dream. It's so worth it. And when I was sitting there in my hospital bed you know, with (laughs) the doctor coming in going, oh, good. Your body is responding. I wasn't sure if it was going to. You know, you get that smack in the face of what am I really
4: hustling for? To find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds
0: here from Mint Mobile.
2: yeah Wow, um, you know when I hear you say that it's funny because uh, Emily Fletcher uh, has been a guest here before and I was reviewing her book because I got the paperback version of it mm-hmm. and one of the things that she said is that you know as a culture we're indoctrinated into this you know sort of uh, mindset of I'll be happy when whatever this checkbox of society's life plan is when I have the you know woman the man whatever the money and she said, your happiness, really, you're planting the seeds for your future, but all of that exists in the present. And yet, I think all of us are very future-oriented. I mean, I always jokingly say that Indian people believe in what Randy Comisar calls a deferred life plan because they believe in reincarnation. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to get reincarnated as a cockroach with the skeletons in my closet, so I'm going to bet it all in this life. So, uh, <laughs> But yet, I, I know this. Like, I know this about myself. That's easier said than done to... See that you know your happiness doesn't lie on the other side of the fulfillment of your desires. And the funny thing is, I've experienced it firsthand. Like, I got the book deal, and it's like, oh, this is going to be the best thing ever. And you know, two two years after it happened, I'm like, wow, why am I, you know, not on cloud nine? And suddenly, my goalpost changes. It's like, oh, my friends are all best-selling authors, so I'm the biggest loser at my publisher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, so I mean, how do you navigate that?
1: Well, it's been interesting because I'm actually going through the book process right now and that yeah. in itself. I mean, when you're like, is this ego? <laughs> is it not? What am I choosing? Um, that's been interesting. Or they want me to write this book. I want to yeah. write this book. Where's the happy medium? So um I mean that's a whole nother conversation. oh yeah. That's that's uh yeah.
2: Oh, what yeah. I
1: <laughs> what <laughs> I had to really ask myself, I remember I was big I was reading like Danielle Laporte and Desire Map and mm-hmm. I know she like, it's just new language, right? Everyone says the same thing in a different language, but how do you want to feel? And I asked that to so many people. How do you want to feel? How do you want to feel when you're parenting? How do you want to feel every day when you go to work? How do you want to feel in your marriage? How do you want to feel when you're having this conversation right here, right now? Right? So Mm. that was like, that was the goal. It's, you know, what do you think the big book deal is going to give you? What's the feeling? Great. How can I create that sense of freedom and ease and aliveness and energy and lightness and impact right here, right now? Uh And when I started having that mindset, it was such a game changer because I was doing everything on a daily basis. Go for the walk, go for the run, invest in this, do that, make sure you're fueling your body with healthy food. And then here I am energized and alive While I'm going and pursuing those quote-unquote goals, I'm like, it's it's the best of both worlds, but I had to reprogram myself
2: yeah well it's funny because you know i i I talked to emily last year sometime and her book yeah i think was on the new york times bestseller list literally within days of it coming out for damn good reason it's a wonderful book like i think she decoded the entire process of meditation in a way that i'd never seen done before and um when i got it you know my roommate started picking it up because he's interested in doing similar work and uh I, i took it from him and i started reading it again and i'll be very transparent with you and tell you the one reason i i emailed her right away said hey my Uh, meditation course access expired. Can you guys give it to me again? Mm -hmm. And the only reason is because I read this one line in the book about one of her uh, students who went from being $80,000 to debt to 1.2 million in one year. And I was like, you know what? That's it. That's my selling point. If that's what's going to get me to do it, so be it. Uh, But I think maybe I'll find something else on the other side of it.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the (laughs) buy-in. We all want to lose weight. We all are Not all of us, but we want to feel good in our bodies. We want more money. We want whatever, but it's always the feeling you're after. It's not the actual money.
2: Yeah. Well, I told you, I mean, I was joking. I put a uh, post on Facebook saying that if I wrote another book, you know, given that everybody wants to put fuck in the title of their book covers, mine would be called (laughs) fix your fucked up life, make more money, have more sex and, you know, uh, be more confident or whatever it is. Yeah.
1: And then what would you tell them on the inside?
2: That this is all bullshit. (laughs) 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 that there is no fix and that, you know, you're searching for something that doesn't exist. I think humans are a perpetual work in progress, at least because I, you know, I, somebody once told me, When uh, we were talking to a vendor about translating unmistakable creative into like every language imaginable. And she listened to a few episodes and she was said, you must be the most self-actualized human being in the world. And I said, no, I'm the most screwed up human being in the world. This is why I have these conversations. (laughs) I'm trying to fix numerous problems. Uh, You know, I always joke, like if I could actually implement the things I've learned from everybody, I, I would be, you know, I wouldn't be human.
1: Yeah. And I feel like then you're all over the place because, yeah. oh, you got to do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, like this is going to happen. And it's yeah. just ridiculous. I'm like, who do I want to be? How do I want to feel? And a lot of times when I'm attracting you know, clients and working with people, they're like, fix me, fix me. And I'm like, you're <laughs> not broken. What do yeah. you want? I don't know. Tell me what to do. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no. What, what does that look like? Like, what color do you want on your walls? Who cares what's in fashion this season? Because next season, you're going to have to repaint. What yeah. the heck do you want?
2: You know, it, it's funny because... Uh I just interviewed this guy about his book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. And one of the things he talked about was that, you know, we have this sort of tendency to copy and paste someone else's path to success. But then he said, go look at the outliers of people who've done things on the internet. And he gave me the example of Tim Urban, who, you know, went and looked at all the advice on how to build a blog or build a brand. It's like, you know, send out a newsletter, you know, once a week, whatever, you keep your blog post this length. And he literally did the exact opposite. He basically writes 70,000 word blog posts, send them out, sends them out infrequently and Wait But Why is one of the most popular blogs on the internet. Mm hmm. I love that. We we look at authority figures and we don't question or even consider context, you know, when it comes to our lives. Like I have always told people, I said, you know, you really couldn't. The danger in, in trying to formulate somebody's path to success is that you're not them. Yeah, they're like, you're the variable that will throw off the entire formula. And nobody seems to really think that through. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, this actually brings me back to, or us back to the beginning of the conversation, like talking about our parents and Mm. thinking that they have all the secrets to success and that they actually know how to parent us. (laughs) Like they, that they know how to raise humans or raise adults, right? Like well rounded, healthy adults. And not everybody does. And it's, it's a spiritual journey. It's your own personal development journey. Um, For a really long time, You know, I bought into that when I started, but I think I've always had this rebellious attitude. So I wasn't so hooked on it, but I, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in a place of like fear or desperation, you're like, Oh, that worked for them. I'm going to try it. Yep. I remember, um, when I was trying to get back into this, I want to call it like feeling alive phase, when I didn't feel like I was dying all the time or dying internally inside, but really post-treatment, I came back from this, okay, I, I feel like a hundred year old woman, I need to gain my strength back. You know, The medical industry is saying, you're good to go. And I'm like, no, I'm not. So I remember looking at, quote unquote, happy people. And now I'm laughing when I say that. But people that I assumed were happy in their life, they were active humans. You'd see them walking, riding bikes. They'd say hello and wave at you. And they just had this positive aura around them. Now I know some people are fakers. But I remember thinking, okay, here they are in a coffee shop. writing in a journal, sipping on a $10 latte. I must try that. Maybe that's the secret to success. (laughs) So then I would sit there and do the same thing. And the first time I did that, I started crying. I started crying. I'm like, this is so incredibly uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I feel what they feel? But the truth was, all my shit came up. Everything that I was avoiding, I had to feel that first before I could feel the joy. But again, if someone's like, go do this, go meditate, go journal, go work out, do your meal planning, you know, start a business, go on vacation, have sex like three times a week, um, have 2.5 children, blah, blah, blah. And then you do that, you're like, not this, not this, not this. Well, what do you want? What do you need? Do you want to be in that coffee shop? Are you angry and resentful that you just paid $10 for that latte? Do you want to write? Would you rather be walking? Do you even want to be in that town? Like asking yourself these questions, we're still seeking external validation.
2: Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Well, let's let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and actually start talking about your work itself. And I think the way I want to get there is, you know, starting with cancer. Um, you know stage four cancer, you mentioned that you felt you were dying on the inside. I'm guessing you probably felt also like you were dying on the outside, right? Um, given what I've heard. And what I wonder. Is what decisions did you make about how you, what, you know, how you plan to raise your kids and how you were gonna live your life going forward when you're confronted with your own mortality? And what can we learn about decoding this language of human behavior from that experience?
1: That is a lifelong question. Um, I'm like, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I've learned so much from the process. Um, first of all, I felt guilty, that was my first response actually, if you want to know the truth, when I was first diagnosed, my first thought was maybe my father will notice me. Maybe my father will notice me now. And I thought, wow, that's screwed up. Like if that's my first thought, I wonder why I got sick. So I was so into personal development before. So I did have some self-awareness. And I also, when I say self-awareness, I feel like Probably didn't have much, but I was aware that your thoughts can create your reality, that emotional trauma can be stored in your body, and that can cause dis-ease in your physical body, right? So, or that's my belief system anyways. So when that happened, I remember thinking, okay, that's screwed up. I got to work on that. My second thought was, I feel guilty for being sick. I feel like I screwed up my children already. Like I've put this trauma inside of them. Now they're gonna be like, oh my gosh, my mom's dying. How's that gonna affect their future? When I got past all that stuff and went through a lot of crazy stuff, some of it I talk about on my TEDx talk called Dying to Be a Good Mother, um, I really got to this point where I realized I wasn't afraid of dying. I truly wasn't. I thought I was. I thought, oh my gosh, my children need me. These people need me. What if, what if, what if? What if? When I got really, really quiet with myself, I was terrified because I didn't know how to feel alive. I had no idea how to actually live my life because I was so conditioned to believe as a woman and a mother that if I felt good, that was selfish. Like that was my true core belief. So because I came to this with... um, you know, taking care of yourself is selfish. Doing anything for you is selfish. I had to, I'm like, okay, that got me towards death. So now I'm going to reverse engineer that. And now raising my boys, looking at my life, I'm like, how good can I get? How good can I feel? How much of a rebel can I be? How much of a stand can I take for women and humanity that we do not need to kill ourselves or live in the state of chronic suffering and pain? I mean, the whole temporary discomfort and all of that. But how can I utilize my emotion to understand the next action steps that I need to take to get back in alignment in my life? So when I'm parenting, I'm always asking myself, does this feel good to me? And if it doesn't, is it temporary discomfort, temporary pain, resistance that I need to get through? Um, But who do I want to be? I mean, from everything, like the school system, how I'm educating my children to you know, I've created all this freedom in my life with my career, our relationships, my husband works for my company now. And here I am asking, um, feeling in a prison because my children go to public school. And I'm like, no, heck no. If we can't do this, we're creating our own hybrid version of it. I did not create all this freedom so that you can be put on this conveyor belt um, to get you into adulthood, to hate your life working nine to five.
2: Yeah, wow. So there are two things we, we actually um, had talked about earlier uh, that I want to look at through the lens of your work, and that is boundaries and resilience. Because you seem to have a, a hell of a lot of both. Um, let's start with resilience, though, because you know when you think about it, I think we all can sit around and read self help books till we're blue in the face. You know, like I've, I've read Ryan Holiday's books on Stoicism. I'm reading another book on Stoicism, and I know myself well enough to know there are moments when the shit hits the fan, and I definitely react instead of respond to the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, how do we decode this whole language of resilience?
1: Hmm, interesting. I feel like I don't know. That's my first response, but the truth is, mm-hmm. I probably do know because I I reflect back on my life, and I think I've gone through a lot of uncomfortable things, even in my childhood, early adulthood, late adulthood. And I came to this point where I said, enough is enough. I do not want to feel like this anymore. So resilience to me, the strength, whatever it is, is continuously showing up for what is in front of you. So being proactive instead of reactive, I can tell you nine out of 10 times, Well, maybe now it's probably one out of 10 times. But when I first started to develop the skill, it was 10 out of 10 times. I was always reactionary. I would read the book. I'm huge into conscious parenting. And then my child would say, boo, the wrong way. And I would react. And then I would feel guilty. And I'd be like, oh, what did you do? But I think for me, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, it is the determination or the perseverance to never give up. I have a very weird relationship with failure. Um, I do not believe in it. I do not believe that humans fail. The only time you quote unquote fail at something is when you quit. And is that necessarily a failure? So I'm chronically just, I guess I'm a lifelong learner. So Mm -hmm. the first thousand times it may not have worked, but eventually something clicks. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, no, it really does. Well, let's talk about this idea of boundaries. I mean, I think that what I got out of, I think, seven or eight months of therapy, uh, talking about previous relationships, parenting, somebody asked me, like, what is the most important thing you've learned about relationships from all the people that you've interviewed? And then looking at them through the lens of your past relationships, I was like, I had no boundaries. Mm. Really simple. I, I knew it. I, you know, stayed in situations where I was asked to pay for things that I knew I couldn't afford. So I credit carded an entire relationship um with you know $400 dinners and you know fancy trips for you know things that I just did not have the funds for
1: mm-hmm. um
2: because I was so afraid um uh, that that person would leave and I've had people leave because of money situations mm-hmm. uh which in a lot of ways and that happened later in my life and it reinforced that but I realized more and more that wow this is my own self-worth here that's not intact
1: Oh ma'am yeah I think it always comes back to us um yeah. I I realize now I really value people who have strong boundaries because if you've ever been on the other side of it, it's incredibly annoying when people cannot speak their truth, right? Uh, So you're like, hey, do you want to come over? Or hey, are you able to look at this quickly for me? I love it, especially team members, right? When you're building a strong foundation in your business or your relationships and that person's like, yeah, no problem. I'll get to it right away. and then secretly they're angry and resentful. I'm like, just speak your freaking truth. Like speak your mind. What is it? But yeah, it always comes back to if I don't say yes, I'm going to disappoint somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I had boundaries before, but I think I did it from a place of survival mode where I really was like, oh man, I can't say no to this. But then I'd feel guilty, right? Like I'm not responding to those text messages. I feel guilty. I also grew up with not a lot of money. So Mm -hmm. Um I didn't have a lot to spend. I didn't really have much credit, so I couldn't be that person. So when I did start to have it, again, yes, I didn't have boundaries. I was giving it away, right? Cuz I'm like, I'm not used to this money. I'm not used to this money, so it always comes back to who do you want to be? How do you want to feel? It is so it comes back to the um the roller coaster analogy. Yeah. Boundaries are so healthy. That's what stop signs are for.
2: Well, so here's the funny thing is that I, I think that the moment you lay down boundaries with some people, the hand first, you know, handful of times it can be un- uncomfortable. Like I can tell you that that first girl that you know I dated for a year would have absolutely left if I told her I was like, you know what, you want these kind of expensive dinners? I was like, I can't credit card a relationship anymore, and I think you should leave. And she probably would have. Um, and I think that there are other people who like they're so afraid of rocking the boat that. And the thing is, the first time it happens, let's say that you set a boundary and you express it, and then whoever you've expressed it to has exactly the reaction you're talking about. They're negative. How do you navigate that dynamic? How much of that is based on your own issues?
1: Well, the whole thing is based on our own issues, always. Like how we experience life is from our lens. What I have discovered is the more (laughs) I'm laughing because I used to be pretty like boom, 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 like aggressive. And I think I did it kind of like, If you went to the Humane Society and you saw that dog that was really, really scared and would bite you, right? Yeah. I was that person. And because I didn't know how to have, like, boundaries with compassion. So now Mm. when I can feel it's being pushed, I simply either – and I'm being triggered – I simply – remove myself from the situation until i come back into my green zone so i call like a trigger like the red zone but when i come back into my green zone i'm like hey thank you so much for the invite or hey sorry i didn't or actually i try not to say sorry i'm working on that um you know i didn't respond to your text message your five text messages yesterday and the four phone calls because i was in a really important meeting i hope all is well So I will respond with compassion, but I give it this space. So I'm like, they Mm. want me to react immediately. Therefore, I'm not going to react immediately. And I'm going to practice mentally and even write it down in a journal if I have to, to see how I can respond with this with love and compassion. Because that is the way that I would like to receive a boundary. And that has been one of the most difficult skills that I've had to develop over the years.
2: Well, I mean, I you know, like people know that I'm notorious for turning down people that anybody would say yes to as a podcast guest, guest. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where the other day I was reading somebody's book and I was like, this book sucks. I, like it was so bad that I just, I was like, there's no way I can put this in front of our audience. And mm-hmm. the guy was pretty upset. You know, he was a super, I'm sure probably far more, you know, successful, you know, money wise than I am. And I think he just found it really offensive that I was willing to scrap it the day before. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm like, This is my kingdom. If Oprah wouldn't give me an hour, I would say no.
1: Yeah. I've had that actually experience too, or actual experience too, where people that I've spoken to or interviewed on my podcast and I'm just not feeling it. I'm like, something is off. She's coming from this place that doesn't feel good to me. Um, And I know that if I'm not in alignment or on this, I can't fake it. I can't fake it till I make it. I can't put this out into the world and be like, hey, everyone, you got to listen to this amazing interview I did with somebody. I'm like, no, I'm not feeling this. I will not put my name behind it. And I've even had that with products. Like, don't give me your shitty products and want me to advertise it. Unless I'm obsessed with it and I want to share it organically, you cannot pay me enough to be like, look at me, I did this and this is magic. If you're Mm -hmm. not living an authentic life, what are you living? And not your message, your personality is not going to jive with everybody, and that's okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that that is is one of the hardest things for people to understand. You know, we're, we're teaching an audience building mastermind course, and I, I realized we spent the entire first month dealing with sort of the psychology of human behavior and navigating the inner critic. And I realized I was like, wow, I was like, you guys have such a, a you know, strong inner critics because I told them, I was like, look, the tactical stuff, anybody could teach you that you mm-hmm. can go figure that out online by reading a few articles. Like if we, if we started there, we're building on a, a, a you know, faulty foundation. And I, I think that they're under the impression that, uh, people are immune to criticism who are successful in any way. And I, I remember this quote, Seth Godin had, you know, said it was, we're putting together this free book of like all these really interesting nuggets from, uh, our guests. And one of the things he said is that almost every bestseller, every box office smash, has been basically ridiculed by the critics um, mm-hmm. and rejected by publishers, you know, uh, movie studios, and everything. And everybody was wrong always. And even with those, you know, even a million people who find out about you, it's inevitable that some of them are going to hate your guts.
1: Yeah, that's really hard to swallow some yeah. days. But the beauty is when you begin to love yourself more and more and more. Yeah. Um, that's okay. I mean, I used to get so many emails because I love to swear. I've actually calmed down a lot.
2: <laughs> you but haven't sworn once in our, our I conversation. Know, I was like,
1: mm, can I? Can I not? But you yeah. did say fuck once. So yeah. I used to say, What the fuck are you doing? You're fucking up your kids. Like I used to say a lot of that. And yeah. people would email me and be like, Heather, I love your message, but your words are just too harsh for me. And I said, Oh, I'm so fucking sorry. <laughs> and I had one woman at a, um, a talk that I did who, what I call, started to mother me, right? It's that ageism. She's like, honey, when I was your age, I just want to give you some advice. And I'm like, oh, here we go. She's like, your message is so great, but your words. And I just, I'm like, oh, do you have a fucking problem with that? Was it the fucks, the F words? Is that your issue? And I'm joking around and I'm smiling and she's like getting triggered. I said, thank you so much for the feedback. But what I really want people to know is the more of themselves they become, yeah. that is when you get to this place in your life where you're happy and content. And you don't have to throw an F word out there all the time. You don't have to throw an F bomb on you know, the title of your book in order for people to notice it. But the point is, be yourself. And if that is the opposite of swearing that's okay. Be you. I Mm did you just may not want to listen to me again. And that is okay. But sometimes that's really hard to, to take as a gut punch.
2: Well, it's funny you just talk about using that as an example of be yourself, because clearly the publishing industry hasn't caught on to that. (laughs) Like, I think that was, you know, I said, for some stupid reason, I think people have this idea that, oh, the Mark Manson book was so successful with the F-bomb in the title. So literally, I mean, you can go on into a Barnes and Noble and you will see a dozen self-help books with the title, you know, with fuck in the title.
1: Yeah. I think now it's gone a little extreme, but... Yeah, it's a bit too much. Yeah. I was at a talk... Uh, about a month ago, and there was it was like an open mic night, and this cute little twenty year old girl got on stage She's like I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, and she was talking about her personal development journey. Um, and she was so sweet. And then at the end, she goes, "And I bought a book that said uh, how to not give a fuck anymore, or whatever it's called." Um, she goes, "Yeah, and that's it. My life is great now." I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. But it's is—it's interesting how people are attracted to that. And I mean, to each their own. If that's what it is for you, go for it. If not, go find your peeps.
2: Well, uh, I want to finish by asking you one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Mm. Make, I don't even want to use the word make lots of mistakes, just ask yourself, what do I want? And go do that in the world. That mm. is so unmistakable.
2: Mm. Amazing. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Well, sereni I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being creative. Thank you for being you and for this opportunity. Uh, You can find me, I hang out a lot on Instagram. My name, Heather Chauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N.com. My podcast is called Mom Is In Control. And yeah, all my deets, just Google my name, you'll find me.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince
3: is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious
1: Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.